Harrison Bergeron is a short story by Kurt Vonnegut, first published in 1961. I think 1961. It's a pretty simple, kind of barely science fiction story, maybe five pages long. It's more like a parable, really. I wouldn't really call it a story. Um, and I'm a Vonnegut fan. Uh, and this little story is, it's no Slaughterhouse-Five. It's, uh, it's no Cat's Cradle. But I've heard it mentioned a few times lately in the whole debate, discussion, mm, visceral reactions for and against, uh, you know, identity politics and critical race theory. And uh, especially now, since Trump kind of uh, passed an order, I guess an executive order saying that uh, anything having to do with critical race theory as, uh, as a policy in various government agencies or any sort of training, um, basically passed an order saying, uh, fuck that shit. Get it out of here. Um, and specifically for Harrison Bergeron, because it was a story I was not familiar with, um, I've heard people bring it up as kind of, a, I don't know, a defense of meritocracy, um, which is uh, considered racist by critical race theory. Or... Um, at least a tool of the white supremacist systems of America. Uh, so I looked it up. I'd never read Harrison Bergeron. Um, I was pleased it was a very short story. Because <laughs> I got a lot of shit to read. I don't know that I'd be into reading a 200-page book, even though I like Vonnegut, so I probably would have read it anyway. Um, so what is the story? The story takes place in the year 2081, uh, and this is the year uh, that the 211th, 212th, and 213th Amendments to the American Constitution, uh, they're passed and they dictate that all Americans are fully equal and are not allowed to be smarter, better looking, or more, physical a more physically able than anyone else. Uh, and in this kind of, you know, dystopian America, there is a government official called the Handicapper General. And she enforces the equality laws, which force citizens to wear handicaps. Uh, so if you're too good looking, you have to wear an ugly mask. And if you're too intelligent, you have to get a tiny little radio implanted in your ear. And it just makes loud noises all the time and distracts you from all your fucking smarty pants thoughts. And if you're uh, too athletic, if you're too strong, too graceful, whatever, you have to wear weights around your neck to slow your ass down. So one day in this dystopian America... Uh, Harrison Bergeron is a 14-year-old boy. He is a super smarty pants, super athletic, devastatingly handsome, kind of like uh, 
statue of David, just a real dreamboat son of a bitch this kid is. You know, he's probably got like, doesn't really say this in the story, but I kind of picture he's got this glorious Jon Snow hair and he's uh, taken away from his parents by the government and uh, they put the kid in jail because he's just too awesome. Uh, the story doesn't really say why. So I assume it's because he's too awesome. Uh, Harrison is just too dreamy on all fronts. And he so dreamy, he poses a danger to society. Uh, and no amount of artificial handicaps can protect America from this nuclear-powered battleship of a dreamboat. Like... I guess kind of picture like Dwayne the Rock Johnson with Jon Snow hair and Elon Musk's brain. Or I guess if you give the Rock Jon Snow's hair, you get uh, the Drogo dude from Game of Thrones. Uh, Momoa, Jason Momoa. You get, you get Aquaman Momoa with Iron Man's brain. That is... Harrison Bergeron. Uh, and the story's weird because Harrison Bergeron's parents don't really seem to know or really care that their son was taken away. Um, the mother has average intelligence, which uh, in, in this story is basically the politically correct term for stupid. Uh, and the dad has weights around his neck because I guess he's just a bit too strong. And uh, he's got a little government issue radio in his ear because uh, he's a bit of a smarty pants himself. So the story is basically the mother and the dad are watching ballet on television. And the dancers all have weights around their necks. And they got ugly masks on their faces so that the viewers can enjoy the performance without having to feel bad about themselves for being fat and ugly I don't think the story actually says that's why everyone needs to be handicapped because of feeling bad but that's my takeaway um, why else would you try to make everyone exactly the same other than to protect people's feelings <laughs> uh so the parents are watching. Uh, the dad's thoughts keep getting interrupted by his handicap radio. And the noises are painful and give him migraines. And the mother, she notices and she's like, yeah, you should lie down and, and rest your uh, handicap bag of weights that are locked around your neck. And, or maybe even take a few weights out of the bag. And the dad says, if I tried to get away with it, then other people would get away with it. And then we'd be right back in the dark ages with everybody competing against everybody else. And then uh, a siren goes off in his ear and he loses his train of thought. That was his little flash of brilliance. Uh, and on the TV, the ballet is interrupted with breaking news. And the news reporter tries to read the news, but they can't because all reporters uh, have speech impediments either real or uh, fabricated. So I guess basically you just have news anchors like faking lisps and stutters, which seems 
mildly offensive to me. <laughs> making almost like you're making fun of other people's speech impediments. Uh, so one of the ballerinas has to give the news because I guess this particular news reporter, his speech impediment is just so bad he can't even actually read the news. So he hands he hands a little news sheet off to the ballerina. She's got to read it, and she announces that Harrison Bergeron has escaped from prison. And after a fair amount of fumbling with the graphics, the little news graphics, I guess whoever is working it is uh, incompetent. That's the interesting thing in this story is like some people are just incompetent and some then everybody else is purposely faking incompetence just so they don't get in trouble. Uh, so the graphics take a little bit to get up and they get a they get an image of Harrison and he's seven feet tall. I guess he's all grown up now. He's seven feet tall. He's got 300 pounds of scrap metal all strapped to his body. Those are his handicap weights. And uh, he's got like full on Bose headsets locked to his head because a tiny little ear radio is is not going to do shit against his genius. Uh, and he also is wearing the most hideous mask anyone has ever seen. So the more beautiful you are, the uglier the mask you get. And right then, Harrison... So they announce Harrison has broken out from jail. And then right then he bursts into the studio and he storms the television set and he says he's there to overthrow the government. And he declares himself emperor of America and he rips off all his handicaps. He just like rips them right off. And then the ballerinas, which oh, he asks the ballerinas, which one of them would like to be his empress and then one of the ballerinas raises her hand and he rips off all of her handicaps. Uh, I don't know why Vonnegut chose like ballerinas as the model for beauty. Like I've been to a I've been to a few ballets and uh most of them do not look like the black swan girl, uh Natalie Portman. <laughs> They're just kinda like Real skinny, kind of plain looking. Um, way too skinny, but maybe that was Vonnegut's thing. I don't know. Maybe uh, I like a girl who's eating a few cheeseburgers. To each their own. Uh, Harrison orders, Harrison Bergeron, he orders the musicians to play the music, promising to make them nobility if they do their best. And it turns out their best sucks. Since in this future America, no one is allowed to excel at anything. So Harrison, he picks up a couple of the musicians in each hand. He just picks them up and then he waves them around like a fucking maestro conductor. And then somehow the music improves. That's his big music lesson. And then everyone is able to play better. I, I didn't really understand how that works. Um, I took band for a year in the fifth grade and... That was not the method my teacher used. But uh, I'm also not playing first chair alto saxophone at the Kennedy Center either. So what the fuck do I know? Uh, and then Harrison and his Harrison Bergeron and his black swan empress are listening to the music. And now they're moved by it since it's gotten a little bit better. And then they start dancing and then... 
they are just defying the laws of physics and they're just flying up to the ceiling and kind of pausing in midair so they can like make out up there. I guess if this story is about meritocracy, their merit is so great that they can just defy gravity. I don't know that this story is really about meritocracy um, after reading it. Uh, so Harrison Bergeron and the Empress, the Emperor and the Empress, they're just kind of hanging out in midair, making out. And then the Handicapper General, she comes into the studio with a shotgun and she blows them both away. She just murders both of them, Harrison and his new Empress. There was no real marriage ceremony, so I don't know if. I don't know. I guess Heron was emperor for two seconds. So he can declare himself married. Um, she forces the music. So she kills them both. She forces everybody, the news anchors, ballerinas, musicians, they got to put their handicaps back on. And then the television goes dark. Um, or maybe it has the little old school rainbow uh, off air thing. <laughs> I don't remember. Uh, and then Harrison's dad, who was in the kitchen for the whole thing, like he just missed what just happened on TV. Uh, I guess he was making an old fashioned or something. It, like he comes back from the kitchen and then asks the borderline retarded mother why she was crying. And then she says something sad happened on TV, but she can't remember what it was. And that is... <laughs> the end of the story like again i would call it more of a parable than a story it, it kind of reads like a like an outline to a larger story um kind of like this is just the bare bones maybe i'll turn this into a novel and flesh it out um it really reminds me of gargantua and pantagruel which were written by the the frenchy writer rabelais in the 16th century uh, those, those are like, it's like a collection of short novels about a couple of giants who French giants, <laughs> French kind of medieval giants who start some battles over some injustice or other, and then resolve them by pissing on everything. Uh, cause I don't know the, the early enlightenment. French audiences loved like pissing on stuff. That was, I think that was considered lofty humor <laughs> back then. <laughs> I mean, the book kind of reads like a, like a Ace Ventura pet detective <laughs> type deal. Um, but uh, they were, these books were important for the time because they were critical of religion during a period of religious oppression that France was going through because of like Catholic and Protestant bullshit. Um, and people, you know, were still in danger of being burned at the stake for heresy. Uh, Catholics were burning Protestants and Protestants were burning Catholics. Um, but the gist of all these stories is that uh, people are idiots and we need a giant super intelligent godlike figure to come in and break all of our corrupt systems and rebuild them. Um, 
Rabelais basically wrote 16th century Avengers movies. You know, we all need a superhero to come in and fix our shit for us because we just can't seem to do it for ourselves. But after reading Harrison Bergeron, I'm not sure that it isn't like a parody of this type of story. Um, Because Vonnegut, you know, who died not too long ago, he was one of the great contemporary American writers, maybe the kind of the closest version of uh, Mark Twain we have for the 20th century. Certainly he was aware of Rabelais and Voltaire and the popular secular literature of like the Enlightenment era. So does Harrison Bergeron actually tell us that meritocracy is good and equity is bad? We like to assume it does. It just kind of paints a picture of, you know, misery of this, you know, near future society where we certainly, you know, would want not not want to be a part of. Um, so are we supposed to assume that the opposite of that would be good? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, the story was written back in the 60s. Um, you know, near the time, of, you know, it's post-World War II, uh, right after the 50s. So, like, the American economy was booming. This was, like, the, the age of the baby boomers. The age of the boomers. Um, Vonnegut was a, you know, a real vocal lefty. He was a World War II veteran, was a POW of uh, the Germans. He was like, uh, basically was in Dresden when it was firebombed and uh, he like managed to not die because he hid himself inside a refrigerator or or something like that. Uh, Or like a walk-in freezer, I don't know. Um, One of the worst, you know, atrocities of World War II was a firebombing of Dresden and uh, Vonnegut was in Dresden (laughs) when that happened. So he came out of that you know, with, uh, a story to tell and opinions. Um, but also he was funny, you know, you can just tell by his writing, like he's funny, had a great sense of humor. So it seems like when I hear people reference his story, I doubt they've actually bothered to read it. I think they hear it from somewhere else. And I don't like, I don't like doing that. Just, just recycling a reference someone else uses without actually going to the source. So I thought I'd go to the source of Harrison Bergeron. Um, And I don't know that it is, I don't know that it is an argument for, it might be an argument against equity or forced equity, like government mandated equity, but I don't know that it's necessarily an argument for meritocracy either. Um, I don't know that this is a binary thing. Uh, We assume, I don't know. Yeah, we assume it does say meritocracy is good and equity is bad. But, you know, the people in the story don't really appear to be living their best lives. The strong and the smart and the beautiful basically had their wings clipped. But... Are they less happy? Because that seems to be the heart of the arguments, both for and against 
meritocracy or anyocracy, any system is happiness. Which system can cause or generate the most amount of happiness for the most amount of people? Or, or maybe it's which system causes the least amount of suffering? Because in this story, everyone is being artificially handicapped in some way. Um, some in more than one way, like uh, Harrison Bergeron or his father. Uh, a couple of the ballerinas, you know, would have weights and masks on because they were, you know, just too strong and too beautiful. Um, I think the mother is the only one in the story not handicapped. In, maybe the mother and the news anchor are the only ones who were not handicapped intentionally. Um, she's just, I guess, naturally kind of dumb and weak and ugly, but she doesn't seem all that happy either. Like mostly through the story, she's, she's concerned about the discomfort the father suffers from his handicaps, like the weights around his neck cause him pain. And then the radio screaming in his ear causes him pain. Um, so the mother says like, I don't want to see you in pain take the weights off. So whichever way you go, people are not going to be happy. But in this particular equitable dystopia, no one seems to be completely miserable either. And everyone is just kind of either naturally or artificially ignorant that things could be different, except for the dad who has that little glimpse of, oh, things used to be different. And we don't want to go back to that, that world of everyone competing against everybody else. I would argue that we're all being artificially handicapped now in all sorts of ways. In some ways, intentionally, you know, with just kind of general propaganda and outright lies and wishful assumptions, but in most ways, unintentionally. You know, it's pretty rare. Cynicism is pretty rare, like a like a proactive form of cynicism. Usually if someone's cynical, it just kind of makes them not do anything. They just kind of throw their hands up. Um, I think most of the ways we're being handicapped, either psychologically or economically, it's someone at the source of it really thinks they're doing a good deed they're doing us a favor you know it's the road to hell is paved with good intentions um and really most of the ways we're being handicapped has nothing to do with increasing happiness or even alleviating suffering like the goal is to sell us something the goal is increasing profits nearly every time four out of five doctors smoke pall malls Corn syrup is fine in moderation. There's no evidence climate change is man-made. These are all trying to sell us on something. They're all just kind of handicapping our, our own capacity to evaluate data and come to our own conclusions. Like, here's another one. The little triangle on that plastic bottle actually means it can and will be recycled. 
or soy products are healthy or animal products are bad for you or most recently not racist is racist you have to be anti-racist all of these are just like psychological handicaps designed to get you to feel bad about yourself and then sell you the cure or get you to feel good about yourself so you continue to buy the thing or the idea that is profiting someone else and sometimes just both things but is Vonnegut's story, Harrison Bergeron, a defense of meritocracy? I don't know. How do we define how do we define merit? The handicapper general in the story isn't so much handicapping merit as I would define it, just more kind of tamping down genetic talent. Like, I wouldn't say that someone who was born smarter or stronger or more beautiful has more merit. Those might be the building blocks of merit, but in themselves, they're not, they don't necessarily, like, necessarily have merit. That's kind of the biggest problem with the whole concept of meritocracy is that we all have our own definitions of merit, a lot of people go through life with a fixed mindset and think people are born with certain qualities or deficiencies, and that's that. And if you believe that to be true, there's a good chance it will be true. If you were told as a little girl that girls aren't good at math, you might believe it, especially since math is hard and you might get a wrong answer and failure is discouraging and you want to avoid those bad feelings and then lo and behold, you're a grown-up woman and you're bad at math. Are you bad at math because you weren't born with the ability? Maybe. But how would we know? You had a handicap installed in your brain by someone who thought they could profit from you doubting your abilities. Probably some little shit-nosed little boy who sucked at math and felt bad that you were outperforming him. <laughs> so he put a bug in your brain, put a little handicap bug in your brain that made you doubt your own ability. Kids suck. How would I define merit? I think of merit as mostly work. We are born with whatever aptitudes and deficiencies, but... Achieving any sort of merit is mostly a product of work. And also, just as important, your ability to tolerate and get over your own fucking failure. We're born with the knowledge of how to do almost nothing. We're born with knowing how to breathe, uh, how to shit ourselves, and how to find a nipple. And that's about it that is the sum of our skills coming out of the womb it takes us a year to learn how to walk maybe five or six years maybe longer to get any good at it just to get good at walking i see people walking around every day most of them still suck at it 
I was walking at 10 months, according to my mother. I was a genius at walking. Unless my mother was lying, which is possible, you know. I wouldn't really put it past my mother to bask in the reflected glory of her child walking a little earlier than the neighbor's baby. But regardless, even if I was a walking genius, I was still shitting myself. It takes like three or four years to learn how to not shit ourselves with any sort of consistency. So who cares about the meritocracy of walking when you're shitting yourself? And I wouldn't say the character Harrison Bergeron, like the character in the story, I wouldn't say he displays any sort of merit. He's genetically stronger and smarter and dreamier than everyone else, supposedly, but he didn't earn any of those qualities. It doesn't seem like he worked for them. They put him in jail at 14. I don't know how old he's supposed to be when he busts out of prison. I don't know if it's the story's not quite clear. That's why I think it's kind of more of a parable. It, the timeline is fuzzy, but I don't know if it's, you know, is he 14? Is he 20? Is he 30? I don't know. Um, but whatever his merits, he didn't work for any of them. He was basically taken to prison and then like wrapped up like Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> I don't know if he was like allowed out at an exercise yard or anything. It's also funny that uh, there, this uh, dystopian America's counter for someone being too strong is to put more weights on them so that they just get stronger. <laughs> like, I don't think uh, Vonnegut probably didn't lift weights. Uh, lifting yeah, exercise wasn't really much a part of the culture back in the 60s. <laughs> I think it was back in the days when, when exercise was considered bad for you. You shouldn't, you know, like, uh, that was one of my favorite Trump quotes was when he was like, <laughs> his philosophy and exercise was basically, we're all born with a finite amount of energy. And if you're exercising, you're wasting that energy. <laughs> like you're using up your, your limited pool of energy. Uh, so you're basically, you're going to die sooner. Um, that's definitely a generational thing. <laughs> Uh, it's also an idiot thing, but mostly a generational thing. Uh, but yeah, I wouldn't say Harrison Bergeron's uh, genetic talents are really merit because he didn't work for them. Uh, and also, I guess he's supposed to be a genius, but however, just because we're told he's a genius, so he has to have this crazy like helmet on, just to blast his ears with distracting noise. But he doesn't really demonstrate that intelligence in the story. Like whatever his IQ on paper, he's still a fucking idiot. He staged the dumbest coup d'etat ever. Just one lady comes in and ends his revolution with a shotgun. So where's the merit in that? Like... 
I'm going to revolt against a tyrannical regime by teaching music and dancing on TV, which is basically the plot of Footloose. Dancing with the Stars is going to uh, set us all free. And I wonder what Vonnegut would say about his own story, you know, because the whole point of writing a story is that, you know, you're exploring ideas without coming to any sort of finite conclusion. You're just kind of, you know, you're just basically, story is basically just asking a bunch of questions. It's a lot of what ifs. What if this scenario? What if that scenario? Let's kind of play it out and see what happens. Um, but as far as having like a hard moral to the story, like he didn't put it on at the end. Um, you know, he was a better writer than that. Uh, so I don't know what he would say about his own story. That's why I kind of think it might be a parody of that type of story. But if so, I don't quite know what the joke is. Other than that, this supposedly uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson with Jon Snow hair is actually an idiot. <laughs> it doesn't have much merit at all. <clears throat> Vonnegut would probably, well, first, he'd probably say the story was not science fiction. Because uh, he, from what I know of him, he seemed to reject that label anytime they tried to put it on it. Most of the stories are basically, you can call them science fiction, but he really did not want to be considered a science fiction writer. I think he wanted to be more, um, I guess, respected as more of just a literary writer than a, a genre, than a dirty genre fiction writer. Um, which I don't know why some of my, some of the best writers I've read were science fiction guys. Um, or at least some of the most interesting. Um, yeah. So I don't know what he would say about the story. Other than that, it wasn't science fiction. But this is what he said about Hamlet. A little quote he said about Hamlet. We know so little about life. We don't really know what the good news is and what the bad news is. We don't know. We don't have enough context for pretty much anything to judge. So who's to say if this dystopian America is good or bad or if it has anything to do with meritocracy at all or if equity is bad? America is enamored with the idea that we live in a meritocracy. But we don't really have much of one. For that matter, we don't have much social mobility either, which is really the whole point of uh, trying to live in a meritocracy. It's basically to combat nepotism and have some vertical social mobility. You know, if you're, if you're born poor, do you have to stay poor? The most recent study I found is from 2019, and it ranks the U.S. as 27th in the world in vertical socioeconomic mobility. 27th. And the idea of meritocracy, like that is, 
basically the American dream or much lauded American dream is a meritocracy. Doesn't matter how you were born, who your parents are, you can not necessarily be rich. We like to put our own spin on, uh, just like meritocracy, we like to put our own spin on the American dream. Um, I don't know, My for most of my life, it seems to be like the American dream is to own a home. I don't, I don't know that that's specifically in there. <laughs> Basically, our American dream is, you know, what's in the Declaration of Independence is just our ability to uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, you know. There's no guarantee you get to be happy. Which was a pretty smart addition. You're free to pursue it. Doesn't mean you're going to get it. Uh, yeah, we do not have much of a meritocracy. We're 27th in the world as far as social mobility. Uh, that is behind Estonia and Lithuania. We did beat out Latvia. I think Latvia was like 31. So kudos to us. We're, uh, we're beating one out of three of the Balkans. <laughs> And what is vertical socioeconomic mobility? It's just a measure of how likely someone who is born poor will still be poor when they reach adulthood. And uh, I don't know, presently our American dream is, you know, not doing so great. We're not really living up to it. I think a lot of this, most of this comes from the fact that as Americans, we're we're almost willfully blinds to our own class system. Like I was taught the whole reason we declared our independence from the British Empire was to extricate ourselves from the tyranny of hereditary rule and class-based nepotism, which the UK still has, you know, to a large extent. And the UK and most of Europe still has royalty. They still have aristocracy. Like the Netherlands, it's a pretty modern European country. They have a king or a queen. I don't remember which one, but they got one. They've got people calling themselves kings and queens and lords and duchesses. And most of those countries have a lot more socioeconomic mobility than America. Because, kind of what I think, because they're all painfully aware of their own class system. The UK especially. They're very aware of it. So they are more active in fighting against the nepotism which stems from it. So they've got nepotism. We got nepotism in America. We don't like to talk about it. We view it in terms of race. Um, where it's a little fixed. We, in America, we view everything through the lens of race, not so much class. Uh, in the UK, they're more concerned about, they have race issues there too, but they take a backseat to the class issues. And as long as they're combating the class issues, everyone of all races can enjoy more upward mobility. Um, 
In the U.S., we're, we, all we give a shit about, especially lately, all we care is about race. And we have to view everything through that lens of race. And if we have some data that does not support what we th- think of as racial issues and points points more towards general class issues across all races, then that data is called uh, racist. That data supports the the white supremacy systems of America, which is uh, where we're at now. Why I was led on this roundabout route to discovering and reading Harrison Bergeron because uh, the new the new religions of uh, critical theory. There's critical well mostly people talk in terms of critical race theory, but that stemmed all sorts of critical theories, which is basically just intersectionality. Um, And they all reject the systems of liberal democracy, which are, or the values of liberal democracy, which are meritocracy and scientific method, basically science, technology, engineering, math, all these things are uh, racist now. I can't really find out why. Um, I'm still still reading about critical race theory. Because uh, it depends on which writer you read. Uh, and then they all, you know, they all put their own spin on it. So it's hard to find any sort of consensus as to what critical race theory actually is. Which I think is on purpose. I think you're supposed to be a little confused, so you don't ask too many questions. Um, I see class in America uh, as as a straight white dude who grew up kind of minimum wage. Um... Maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? The fuck do I know? But for whatever reason in America, we we barely talk about class. And I can't be the only one thinking about it. Like, it's enough to make me wonder if there's some active conspiracy to get us all worked up about race instead of class. Because to me, class is more unifying. Get all us... uh, lower middle class and poor people get us all like asking real questions to uh, the people with more money. How did you get that money? Did you really earn that money or did you fucking steal it? (laughs) Like the, uh, the FinCEN documents that just came out from the, uh, the international consortium of uh, something journalists. They just put out a big, huge investigative journalist piece about basically the banks every major bank everywhere is just like blatantly laundering money for drug cartels and terrorist groups like trillions of dollars despite all of the banking regulations that were put in place they are fully ineffectual Nothing has changed and it's actually ramped up 
as far as like financial bullshit since the 2008 banking crisis, housing crisis, housing bubble, whatever we call it, great recession. Nothing has gotten better and it's actually gotten worse. Um, so in the reading that, where does race come into that? Unless you just say all those shitty bankers are fucking piece of shit white dudes. Which most of them probably are. <laughs> but I'm not seeing any of that money. I'm a piece of shit white dude. I'm not seeing any of that money. Um, I want to get some of that money and then share it with all my black friends. And all my women and trans friends. I want to uh, get a little bit of that and let's spread. Let's take that illegally gotten money and uh, disseminate it a little bit. You know, everybody gets reparations. <laughs> How do you view that through critical race theory? Other than that, oh, I guess that's just another product of white supremacy. Maybe. Maybe it's a product of fucking nepotism. The argument for meritocracy seems to stand around like, uh, I mostly hear like arguments from or defenses of meritocracy for like uh, when we're talking about national advancement or competition on a, you know, international level. Like America is stronger when you allow the best and brightest to excel. A rising tide lifts all ships and all that. Um, Milton Friedman is uh, an economist. He wrote an essay 50 years ago. Uh, I th think the title was like, The Social Responsibility of Business is to Increase Its Profits. So basically his argument was CEOs shouldn't worry about shit like high wages for employees or uh, health insurance or protecting the environment. Companies should not worry about any of that. Or corporations should not worry about any of that. If Because if you increase the profitability of your company, everyone will benefit, and that rising tide will lift all ships. Rages will, will rise on their own. Uh, the environment will be taken care of somehow. Um, I guess capital, you know, the increase in capital and uh, the advancement of technology will fix any environmental problems. Basically, Gordon Gecko, greed is good. Uh, and this is basically an economic system based on merit. And merit, in this case, is defined by profitability. So profit is the only metric that matters when we're assessing which corporations have more merit than others. Um, and it's been 50 years. And that's pretty much been our economic model ever since. And corporations seem to be very profitable. That NASDAQ and Dow Jones has gone way up. So much so that that's how we've been measuring our economy up until this year, basically. The economy is good because the NASDAQ is up. Wait, what? I mean, there's still poor people? Well, that must be their fault. 
What do you mean? There's people not benefiting by the by the rise of the Nasdaq. The, well, that's their fault. They don't have merit. It all depends on how you measure merit. You can convince yourself you have a meritocracy if you just adjust your definition of who has merit and who does not. And it's been 50 years. It's basically been the economic model in the United States. And companies are very profitable. Also, the environment is fucked. Wages have fucking stagnated. And we have rampant income inequality. So, fuck you, Milton Friedman. Your definition of merit sucks. This is the problem when you're trying to advocate for or against meritocracy. It's... How do you define it? How do you even define equity? What the fuck does that mean? Harrison Bergeron, the story kind of paints equity in a poor light, but uh, it doesn't present meritocracy as a solution to that. When Harrison Bergeron, when the character Harrison breaks out of jail and declares himself emperor, that's not a meritocracy. That's just some asshole declaring himself emperor that's just another form of tyranny he declares himself emperor seemingly by i guess the right of genetic superiority which is uh fascism you know (laughs) nazism at the very least that seems to be the point of the story to me is that one system isn't better than another I'm sure, you know, we we like to, uh, I guess, prop the concept of meritocracy us. Mostly I think we do it to convince ourselves we actually live in one when there's a fair amount of nepotism and racism and all other sorts of isms. So they're really doing most of the deciding. And, you know, meritocracy is really like a sliding scale. It's not like you have one or you don't. It's just how much of a meritocracy is one particular system or one particular organization over another. Um, I think favoritism and nepotism is a, they're constant threats. You know, this is a war that never ends. Um, And there've been a few studies done that I read recently that uh, basically the more, the more an organization believes it's kind of following the principles of meritocracy. In actuality, it has less. So it's kind of like you assume you have it, but by assuming you have it, you're not really watching out for its opposite. You know, you're not watching out for favoritism and nepotism, which is basically, you know, like the UK. I mean, the UK is... I don't think it's in even in the top 20 as far as upward social mobility, but it's definitely better than America, you know. Um, and that's weird. It's the whole reason we declared our independence, at least as far as I was taught, is because we wanted to create a meritocracy over here in America. And now it turns out the UK is doing better than us in that. Um, 
But again, like they they assume they live in a class-based system, so they actively fight against it. We assume in America we live in a race-based, well, some of us assume we live in a race-based system and we fight against that and yet our class divide is getting worse and worse. Maybe we should adjust our narrative to fit the data or data. I say data sometimes. That's weird. I don't think I'm from a part of the United States where they would say data. We'll see. I'll say data for now. I like meritocracy. I like the concept of meritocracy a lot. I don't know that I've ever benefited from one. Um, I don't expect, I don't know, I'm 44. Uh, I've been living long enough to, to know that meritocracy is still kind of rare. And meritocracy happens by degrees. It's not a, It's not digital. It's not an on-off situation. It's a little more analog. Because I've seen... I've been around. Grew up in Europe. Spent a few years in the Middle East. Even went to Vietnam once. Um, I've seen a lot of tribalism and tribalism is not, tribalism does have some merits. It's not the worst system. It's better than anarchy, but it's pretty restrictive and pretty stifling. Um, generally I would say tribalism is not a great system. And meritocracy is our way out of that. It's our way out of divine right and hereditary rule and, and privilege. Meritocracy gets us out of the, the tyranny of privilege. True meritocracy is probably impossible, you know, like true objectivity. But I don't know what's so bad about striving toward an unattainable goal. Like, should everyone, should we have equity? Everyone should be equitable just so no one's feelings get hurt. Your feelings are meaningless. Your feelings are always going to be hurt. And you want to force people to not perform to their potential? That's a horrible feeling. I've had that feeling a lot. Not not being able to do as well as I know I can do because of outside forces. Like, that shit makes you want to fucking blow some shit up. <laughs> the other, uh, I talk about national... I don't know, the, the competition between nations. Usually the other discussion of when discussions of meritocracy are happening, um, they seem centered around institutions. Like who are the best and most qualified people for advancement to the top positions within 
an existing structure or an organization? Like, why aren't there more women CEOs? Usually what I found is, well, first of all, like, who the fuck wants to be CEO? <laughs> like, that seems like a lot of work. For what? For a bunch of money? Like, how much money do you need? You're going to kill yourself for decades to run a fucking company that's probably poisoning a river? That's what I found is we're discussing about like meritocracy within an institution. Usually the institution itself has no fucking merit. Most institutions should have either evolved or gone extinct decades ago. Who cares who is the most qualified for what job at a fucking financial firm that's laundered for at HSBC that's been laundering money for the Sinaloa cartel. What the fuck do I care that they don't have a female CEO in that criminal organization or a fucking oil company? What do, why would I care that finally there is a transgendered CEO at Exxon? Great. Thanks a lot, you know. At least at least we have a non-binary person to blame for Miami being underwater. <laughs> like what are the, what are these discussions of meritocracy? Who gives a shit who gets into some archaic Ivy League school where they all run around in fucking wizard's robes like it's Hogwarts? I graduated top of my class at Princeton Law and interned for a Supreme Court justice. And now I make seven figures working in-house at Dow Chemical, convincing governments and consumers that the little triangle recycling logo thingy on all our plastic actually means anything. I hope you guys are all aware that all the plastic that we put in the recycling bin isn't actually being recycled and it never has been. <laughs> it's all been a fucking lie. Ah. <sighs> it never has been recycled and it's never gonna be. <laughs> it's all been a lie to get us to keep buying plastic and not feeling bad about it. <laughs> That is meritocracy in America. We used to ship all that plastic to China. And then we would tell ourselves that China was, China was recycling it. Like, that. well, China needs all this plastic, so they're going to recycle it and use it for their manufacturing products and then sell those products back to us. And that was a fucking lie. We would sell it to China. China would either burn it or bury it or dump all that plastic in the ocean. And... For the past two years, due to our little uh, trade war we've been having with China uh, because of Trump, China's not taking our plastic anymore. So instead of them pretending to recycle it, we're stuck with it and we're just burning it or burying it or dumping it into the ocean ourselves. 
And that little recycle logo on the plastic, it means nothing. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. It's all been a marketing ploy to get consumers, i.e. us, to shut up about the mountains of plastic waste we produce. Because about 30 years ago, we all started complaining about all the damage plastic does to the environment. And then petrochemical companies like Dow, like Dow Chemical, they were worried about their bottom line. They wanted us to keep buying plastic. So instead of investing in technology that would make recycling plastic profitable, or at least fully biodegradable, or even creating or developing an entirely new material that could compete with plastic. Instead, they invested heavily in marketing campaigns, i.e. propaganda, to convince the public that the plastic container that we buy our strawberries in will one day become a dry cleaner bag or an artificial heart valve or your sister's anal plug. Actually, your sister is probably at least as savvy as I am when it comes to corporate propaganda, so her anal plug would be made out of shatterproof glass, which is 100% recyclable and dishwasher safe. What I really find interesting about critical race theory is its rejection of the foundational principles of liberal democracy, which is what America is, um, Western Europe, Australia, all these countries. We're all liberal democracies, um, which I don't really hear much about. Uh, I think a lot of Americans don't really understand what all these different political philosophies mean. It's all either fascist or communist, um, as if like America is somehow in the middle of those. Like, again, it's very, I guess we, I guess we just tend to think in binary terms, but it's really more of like a triangle, you know, it's a trinary. Um, it's, you know, we think in terms of left and right and the more left you are, the closer you get to communism and the more right you are, the closer you get to fascism, which I guess does have some, I guess that does make a bit of sense, but really the United States is a liberal democracy, which is a completely separate thing from either communism or fascism. Um, it's not like in the middle. It's not like taking the best of, you know, it's not like cherry picking from communism or fascism and then it's how we create America. It's really a triangle. It's three separate things. Um, and so, especially on the uber progressive left, who's very hyper vigilant against fascism, it seems like they think Marxism or communism is the only antidote to that. Um, I don't know. I don't guess people don't fucking read history. <laughs> I don't know, but. So even like uh, Antifa, which is, you know, the name is anti-fascist. Somehow that means if you want to be anti-fascist, you have to be a fucking Marxist. Um, and fascism and Marxism 
or communism are both murderous regimes. They're both murderous ideologies. There's a third option, and that is a liberal democracy, which is what we have now. And uh, for anybody on the right, they hear the word liberal, they freak the fuck out because... If you're on the right, you think liberal is synonymous with fucking pussy. <laughs> so I found most people, I think, who vote for Trump, it's not even like they like Trump. They're just deathly afraid to be called a liberal because liberal means fucking pussy. <laughs> you're like, no, 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 no. Democrat, American Democrats and Republicans, we're all liberal Democrats. We're all, there's just two parties within this liberal democracy that we have. Um... So that's all. I just want you guys to realize there's a third option that we've been enjoying for 200 years. Um, and occasionally we'll have little scares of fascism or scares of communism. Most of them are way overblown. Um, yeah, it, it's not a battle between fascism and communism or fascism and Marxism or Maoism or whatever. There's a third option. There's lots of other options. We currently have the third option. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why. I never really hear anybody like explain. I guess nobody knows or are we assuming everybody knows? I think most people don't realize this. Like we don't even know what type of, of political system we're living in. Or maybe we get too caught up in that because we're all either divided like Republican or Democrat. So we get, I don't know, we're too involved in the minutiae, but the broader political philosophy that America and Western Europe is based in is liberal democracy. And the founding principles or the founding like values of a liberal democracy are meritocracy, scientific method, equal opportunity, equal rights, all that good stuff that, you know, up until a few years ago, we all thought we liked. Um, and the problems we have in America are not because of these values. They're because of our failure to fully realize our, these values. It's our failure to recognize that we don't have a full meritocracy. We're just assuming we do. We don't have full equal opportunity or on paper we all have equal rights pretty much all i'm not quite sure i don't think trans rights has been signed into law yet but that's the great thing about a liberal democracy is that you can keep including things it's not exclusive yes i'm sure at the you know declaration of independence and the the constitution i read a few things just saying it's a constitution is just a white supremacist document Maybe it is. Maybe it was. But it also is pretty cleverly written that we can make it more inclusive. We can put amendments in it, like abolishing slavery. We can include, we can fudge the language a little bit so that Instead of all men are created equal, we can say all humans, all people, all whatever. We can make the language more inclusive so that we all enjoy liberal democracy. So that we all can be, regardless of our race or gender 
or sexual orientation, we all can be white supremacists together. <laughs> we all can enjoy the fruits of white supremacy, regardless of whether we're actually white or not. Um, but I don't know, from what I've read for critical race theory, like their response is, is not to make it more inclusive, but really just to reject the values altogether and just label them racist and misogynist and fascist and all that shit, which they're not. Some of these values are discriminatory. They definitely discriminate. Meritocracy discriminates against those with less merit. That's kind of built in there. It's kind of inescapable. So if you're trying to get rid of all discrimination, I guess you might have to get rid of meritocracy. But I think in the really real world, we're just going to have to put up with some form of discrimination. Like, if I really suck at something, I shouldn't be rewarded for it. I'm okay with that. I suck at basketball. I could kind of shoot baskets okay when I was a kid. I could not dribble for shit. I could never dribble down the court without looking at my fucking hand. I should never have been rewarded for continuing to play. And I was not rewarded, and I stopped playing, and then I got into wrestling and swimming, which I was much better at. I was never great at a sport that had a ball. It's too much for me. The scientific method discriminates against wishful thinking, basically. That's a big thing for uh, critical race theories, like your personal story and your personal narrative, which I think might be the most maybe dangerous part of it because stories are powerful. I love stories. I told a few stories on this podcast and I'll be telling some more because I love a story. Um, but also, you know, stories can be kind of misused. Stories, it's very easy to use your own personal anecdotes to ignore objective data. I did it. I didn't say data. Data. The scientific method discriminates against wishful thinking and personal nonsense. It's discriminatory. Equal opportunity and equal rights discriminate against nepotism. Liberal democracy, in my view, as not a historian, just a dude who read some books, probably the best political system humanity has come up with to fight nepotism. Because you go anywhere outside the West... Anywhere I've been, the Middle East, uh, been to some of Africa, they love them some nepotism. Really, you go to the Middle East, the only reason anyone gets a government job in any country in the Middle East is so you can get bribes. <laughs> That's the whole point of getting, why else would you get a government job? You get bribes and you put yourself and your tribe in a position of power. There's no, they don't have the concept we have of uh, bettering your community. They don't give a shit about that. 
that doesn't even enter that's not even part of their thought process now we have that concept in america we don't always live up to it. We have plenty of motherfuckers who get in position of powers to collect bribes and everything. But we also have systems in place to catch them. And we're more likely to catch them. Um, really, that's a big reason we have a free press. That's the reason we're able to catch banks like HSBC and, JC and JP Morgan when they're just blatantly laundering money for drug cartels. Right under the noses of government regulators. The government regulators are not doing a great job, but we have a free press that can expose these sorts of things. That doesn't really happen in the Middle East. That shit doesn't really happen in Iran. That shit doesn't happen in Russia. I mean, it does happen in Russia, and then they murder the journalists. Actually, some of these journalists who just brought out that banking stuff, some of them might get murdered. I mean, it's kind of ballsy. <laughs> You're dealing with trillions of dollars of money. That that buys a couple hitmen. Um, I don't know. I guess I can wrap this up. Uh, it's what I've been thinking the last couple of days. Is I remember a, a pretty hack comedy trope a comedic trope really probably just five years ago you know like is pretty hack pretty common little comedy thing is to make fun of a of a white woman of a karen uh who who would make a declaration i don't see color and we would all roll our eyes at her because we all knew color was the first thing she saw the first thing she considered would meeting a new person we love to make fun of this lady but that was the goal that was the goal for all of my lifetime up until maybe three four years ago was not seeing color or gender or who you wanted to marry, or who you said your prayers to, like color especially, because race isn't really a thing. Like there's there's no such thing as race. The concept of race is just a fictional story created a couple hundred years ago by ignorant, unwashed, inbred aristocracy, mostly British, to divide the disenfranchised so we all fight amongst themselves. Let's pit the poor blacks against the poor whites. They'll fight amongst themselves and then they won't talk about this class thing so much. They'll shut up about like, you know, why we own all the property, why we make all the rules. Here's how I know there's no such thing as race because all humans can have sex with each other and produce viable offspring. We're all the same species. So what the fuck is race other than a bit of melanin and a few cultural idiosyncrasies? All the argument is a cuckold and a whore. And you know it's true because I just quoted Shakespeare.
That's how you know something's true, when you can tag a Shakespeare quote on the end of it. And I'll end with this. There's a uh, one of the tenets of Buddhism is uh, life is suffering. Um, and then I read a different translation of that, which is a lot of times translations are not quite off. So I guess I forget what the word was in old-timey medieval Hindi or uh, whatever language the Buddha wrote in. Um, but what was translated for us as life is suffering, whatever word he used for suffering actually doesn't mean suffering because it's a word that in English we don't really have a great equivalent to. So more accurately, instead of suffering, it would be like unsatisfactoriness. Life is unsatisfactoriness. Life is continually not satisfying. Or we as people are chronically dissatisfied with life. And that is what life is. And if you accept that, you don't feel so bad about it. And it's kind of put there by design. I mean, that is, if anything were completely satisfying, then you would after doing something once, you'd never want to do it again. If, if sex were completely satisfying, you'd have sex once and go, okay, that was good. And you'd never have sex again. And life would die out because not enough babies would be born. Um, so embrace that. That's basically all these political systems. It's who among us are the least satisfied and how do we attempt to rectify that? And really that's what Harrison Bergeron is to me. It's not really a defensive meritocracy. It's not a, it's not a condemnation of equity, of enforced equity. It's that no matter which way you go, all of us, to some extent, are not going to be satisfied with it. So get over it. And embrace it. And enjoy the fact that nothing in life is ever completely satisfying. And make that a part of your identity. I'm never going to be satisfied. That's how you get shit done. That's how you get this little thing called ambition and drive. And what the fuck is identity anyway? Identity is a real millennial concept. I'm Generation X, and uh, we don't have identities. We have these things called personalities, which are kind of like identities, except you don't get to decide your own personality. You don't get to tell somebody else what your personality is. To a large extent, somebody else decides what your personality is. Personality was kind of, it's like something we pretended to have as kids after watching MTV as like latchkey kids while we were waiting for our parents to come home from work. And then these personalities would evolve 
over decades of disappointment. So who the fuck are we as individuals? I would say if I had to describe myself, uh, who am I, which is a dumb question. It's not something anybody can really answer. Um, You are your experiences and your accomplishments. And hopefully that is constantly changing. You're constantly having new experiences and you're constantly accomplishing things. And that is constantly changing who you are, even just a little bit. Like, how can anyone declare an identity as if your identity has any enduring value? It's like, this is who I am. It's never subject to change. And I find young people, I'm 44 now, so I can say the phrase young people. (laughs) Kids, you fucking 20-something kids, you're the most passionate about your identities because you have limited experiences and few accomplishments. I mean, we had identities in high school before we kind of earned our personalities, us Gen Xers. Our identities were jock, nerd, preppy, stoner, banger, uh, mod, mm, fly girl, weird girl, you know, basically uh, the breakfast club. (laughs) 